Christchurch, New Malden, Sunday the 27th of November 2022, 11 o'clock service. Tim Davis speaking on What do we learn about the coming of Jesus from King David? It's uh, the first Sunday in Advent and I love seeing that candle lit, I really do. Why? Well, because for me it marks the start of the festive season. Um, it means Christmas is coming and I can start to get in the mood for Christmas without peaking too early in the middle of December. Uh, I can start to feel all Christmassy. Because uh, if you're like me, you know, you can sometimes just get excited about Christmas too soon because all the signs all around you from kind of like the middle of October getting ready for Christmas. And it's so hard to avoid the temptation to kind of like, oh, it's time to put Christmas. I must have my first mince pie and it's not even the end of October. I devour a tub full of Christmassy twiglets and it's the first week of November. Um, both of those things have almost done this year. Um, but yeah, you know, Christmas decorations, they get hung all over the place. Stores have, start having the Christmas decorations up before we've even left British summertime. Um, the Christmas decorations start going up at the beginning of November, don't they? You kind of feel, oh, come on, let's at least just get Halloween, bonfire night, Remembrance Sunday out of the way, and then surely it's time for Christmas. But no, I time it just right. First Sunday of Advent, I start to feel Christmassy. I get more and more excited, start getting presents ordered, rapid, get the tree out peaking just in time for Christmas Day. It's great. Um, I think, you know, I remember a few years ago, if you were someone who used to regularly commute up into London, um, you couldn't help but notice the uh, Christmas display that Pimlico plumbers would have up on the roof of their building each year. Uh, and this would get, like, earlier and earlier each year. More and more despairing I had become. And one year, and I think it was about 2013, they had their Christmas display up 1st of October. I was livid. I complained about it on Facebook. Did I get sympathy? No, I got Hugh Griffiths mocking me and telling me to man up. Um, you know, it's not been too bad in recent years, despite you know, not actually going into town a lot because of COVID. Uh, Pimlico Palmers don't seem to put up a Christmas display anymore, um, possibly because people like me complain that they put them up too early. Um, plus, I deleted Hugh as a friend on Facebook because I don't have to worry about that. It's fine. Uh, but no, it's, it's hard not to miss something to avoid something when all the signs are there. When everything is pointing to something coming, you can't just pretend it's not happening and ignore it, can you? And when all the signs were pointing to the coming of the Messiah over 2,000 years ago, could you really ignore them? Fail to recognize them? And just like Pimlico Plumbers display in 2013, the signs had been there for a long time. Uh, we're thinking this morning about what we can learn from uh, David about the coming of Jesus. And as I said, all the signs pointing to the coming of Jesus were there a long way back. When I was thinking about readings for this morning's talk, I was tempted to give you the long, boring readings from one of the genealogies. Uh, because actually, I love a good Bible genealogy. Um, for that is it. It's not just a long, boring list of names, the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of. No, I actually, um, I don't find it boring. I love biblical records like this because I think they show us something. They don't just tell you historically who was descended from whom. They show us history being shaped by God. And in the biblical genealogies of Jesus, we see God's plan of creation, salvation, and restoration 
been carefully threaded through history. Um, the genealogy in Luke, if you just put that back up, Nathan, uh, the genealogy in Luke, I think, is a particular favourite uh, part of the Bible for me, especially when you read it through with young people. Now, it might seem an odd choice or something to read through with young people, but when you get them to read through and call out every time they recognise a name from the Bible, it's actually quite exciting. They start to see all of these people taking place in history, how God worked through their lives, of so many people, how his plan of salvation was at work from the very beginning. And one of the names that every young person recognises, of course, is David. And God certainly was at work through his life, protecting him, anointing him, rebuking him, producing a royal descendancy that would lead to Jesus. Now, if we look at um, the genealogy at the start of Matthew's Gospel, it's slightly different from Luke's. Uh, but firstly, I think it's always worth noting this when we look at Matthew's genealogy. It's literally the first thing in his Gospel. You know, what a way to announce your Gospel. We don't have the narrative of Jesus' birth, but we go right into his genealogy. And yet, actually, to a Jewish audience, this wouldn't have appeared so surprising. Um, genealogies were really valuable to people showing the purity of lineage that was so important to a Jewish person. The prophet Ezra, in chapter 2 of his um, uh, book, speaks of some of the returning ex Jewish exiles who searched for their family records, but they couldn't find them. And so they were deemed to be unclean, not pure Jewish people, and they were excluded from the priesthood. Now Matthew, through his genealogy, is giving his readers this unmissable sign. He's holding up a big arrow right at the start of his gospel and pointing it at Jesus' ancestry and saying, look, here is a sign you can't ignore. And the Jewish reader would have been fascinated to see that Jesus could trace his ancestry all the way back to Abraham. But what Matthew is particularly keen to point out is Jesus' links to David. Now, the genealogy is carefully arranged in groups of 14 names each, from Abraham to King David, from King David to the exile in Babylon, and the exile to Babylon to Jesus' birth. And the numerical value of the name David in Hebrew is 14. And this is the number of generations, accordingly, that Matthew has chosen for each of those groups. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, here, unmistakably for the reader, is the evidence, the pedigree, as it were, to prove a title and make a claim, that of being the Messiah. Now, the term son of David was a very messianic one. The Jewish people understood that the promised Messiah would be born of the line of David. Here in that genealogy, at the start of Matthew's Gospel, before we hear about the miraculous birth or Jesus' ministry, here is this unavoidable sign designed to prove that Jesus is a son of David and the son of Abraham, and therefore of that nation and family line out of which the Messiah was to come. But of course, this sign wasn't anything new. The whole reason it should have made sense, was because David himself had been pointing the way. Uh, Matthew Henry, the great Christian um, commentator, biblical commentator, describes Psalm 110 as pure gospel, 
But I must say, I've never found it that inspiring, but I'm not ever going to say it's something to be consigned, you know, dismissed. Um, and I think it is important in historical context. And yet the more and more I looked at it, the more and more I could see this overwhelming concern with the expected Messiah, the Christ. And that's something the Jews implicitly understood, something they actively believed. But of course we'll see a bit later on how the Pharisees of Jesus' day responded almost with denial when confronted with the reality of the chosen Messiah, the promised Messiah. Some people describe the psalm as maybe David's creed. Uh, and when we start to kind of dig into it, we see a series of statements about Christ that ring true in Christian belief and mirror some of the words of the Christian creeds. Firstly, our belief that God the Father and God the Son are one and the same. It says, the Lord says to my Lord. Now, David worships the Lord God of Israel, and there was only one Lord. God had made that very clear, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Yet here he says, the Lord says to my Lord. Two distinct, yet one in the same. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He rules at the right hand of the Father. He is the true king. Now on that subject of being a true king, um, we see at the start of Matthew's Gospel that King Herod attempts to thwart the arrival of Jesus by having all the boys in Bethlehem killed. Now King Herod was not a king in the same way that David was many generations previously. David was anointed by God. Herod was not. David was of a royal line. Herod was not. Herod wasn't even pure Jewish. He was half Jewish at that. In fact, just to underscore what importance a genealogy, a pure Jewish bloodline, was to the Jewish people then, it's believed that Herod was actually so embarrassed by not being able to claim this that he ordered all of the records of official genealogies to be destroyed so that nobody could attempt to claim a purer royal pedigree and thus threaten his grip on the throne. Now, Herod was appointed king of Judea by the Roman Senate. He was no true king. He was a ruthless murderer. But he certainly tried his best to be the king of the Jews. One of his most memorable achievements, after all that murder and infanticide, was to rebuild the temple. And even though it wasn't completed until several decades after his death, it was still an impressive legacy. But despite that, he was no true king. He was not the one David had been pointing us to, the one that Matthew holds up a big sign to at the, uh, in his genealogy right at the start of his gospel. Only Jesus was the true king. We see in verses 5 and 6 that Jesus would in fact crush kings and rulers of the earth, such as Herod, from his seat at the right hand of God the Father, where he rules, God the Son will also judge the nations. Now that image presented, this sounds quite a harsh one, of brutal judgment. And it's true that we believe that God the Son will come again to judge the living and the dead. Everyone will be held to account before God in judgment. But we don't need to get carried away too much and you know, simply think of this as a brutal purge of everyone wicked such as King Herod, because 
if we're honest, each and every one of us has committed a sinful act that at some point has put us in opposition to God, that has been the opposite of God's nature and desire for how we should live. David himself was well acquainted with his own actions that made him an enemy almost of God's perfect nature. And yet, David, fully aware of this, isn't using the psalm to cry out for mercy, desperately hoping to somehow avoid the inevitable judgment. No, he sees something else. Because it can be easy to forget when we're reading that passage that the judge in question is the God of Jesus Christ, the God who is love, and that this judgment is at the hands of Jesus himself. What is the source? What is the context for that judgment? God, whose unfailing, invincible and unfathomable love for the one to be judged was seen in his ultimate act of sacrifice and restoration of mankind through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus, the Messiah, described in the psalm, is not only a king who rules for eternity, but also a priest forever. This theme, this heavenly priest, is something that Paul kind of riffs on, you could say, in his letter to the Hebrews in chapter 4 and 5, that Jesus is described as our great high priest. The priest would intercede on the behalf of the person, the person who is sinful, coming towards God and saying, I'm sorry, forgive me. The priest is the one who interceded with God on their behalf. Jesus would intercede on our behalf in all dealings with God. He would be responsible for the necessary sacrifice for of atonement. In Jesus, we have a great high priest who lived our life, but who ultimately knew what it would take to intercede on our behalf. God the Son, interceding for humanity, offering the perfect the only acceptable sacrifice to God the Father. The same God who sits in judgment is the same God who is interceding on our behalf forever. And we are therefore able to be restored to the creations that God intended us to be. Being condemned doesn't mean being held to some external standard. It means coming before God and having the opportunity to be forgiven, to be restored, to be, to become the person, the gift that he or she is, that God intended us to be. We are judged and our old life is put to death. The new life, that which is fit to dwell in the kingdom of God, is what remains. Um, I seem to always end up preaching at Advent. Um, I don't know if it's because we essentially always have like three Sundays and then a carol service in the morning. So it kind of goes like, okay, Stephen, Katie, Tim, done, done. There we go. Um, but I always seem to end up preaching um, at Advent. And I think two or three times I've ended up speaking on the well-known passage from Isaiah 11. I'm sure next week when we're looking at what Isaiah says, we'll probably have a bit more reference of this. Um, and much like Psalm 110, in fact, much like a great deal of the Old Testament, it points towards Jesus. 
and particularly with this link to David. It says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. His root, from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. A shoot from the stump of Jesse, the father of David, his son, David, king of Israel. And from his roots, a branch, Jesus, that will bear fruit. And that passage contains those wonderful images of justice and righteousness being restored to the world and of the whole order of nature being turned on its head from that which we know. The wolf living with the lamb, the leopard lying down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the child and the snake and the cow and the bear, all living in harmony with one another. It's this incredible vision, is it not? And what a privilege it must have been for Isaiah to have been given that vision to be given those words to deliver to the people. And so when I've spoken on that passage in the past, I like to ask this question. Do we see what Isaiah saw? Do we see the hope of the return of Christ, the new heaven and the new earth, where everything is restored to its original glory? And so looking at Psalm 110, using that same question, do we see what David saw? Do we see the Messiah? Do we see the signs pointing to the promised king who will rule over all and the promised great high priest who intercedes for all? Do we see him in the person of Jesus Christ born at Christmas time? Jesus himself asked this of the Pharisees. He said, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Whose son, he's asking them, do you expect Messiah to be? Who has promised to us, who David so clearly pointed toward? The only reply they can say, of course, is the son of David. So far, so good. The Messiah, the one who had set the Jewish people free, was to be a descendant, a son of David. And so why, we think back to what David said, why does David fully aware of the first commandment, call him Lord. It's a question Jesus asked of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees can't answer this publicly. They know what the answer is, but they can't accept it. If the Messiah was a descendant of David, how could this honoured king, David, refer to his, descend his descendant, his offspring, as Lord? Because unless the Pharisees were ready to admit that Messiah was also the divine Son of God, as Jesus claimed, they could not answer his question. To do so would be to admit publicly that Jesus was the Son of God that he claimed to be. That he was the true King. And that everything that he represented, everything his arrival meant, would be a threat to their way of life. The Messiah would not just be some really special, significant person. Some great like David or Abraham who at that time would sort everything out for Israel and for the moment make it all great again. No, the Messiah would be much more than that. He was God incarnate. For only God incarnate could restore the relationship between God and mankind. The signs were all there. Not just in what David and the prophets spoke about hundreds of years previously, but in everything Jesus did in his life. 
in everything that God had done in history up to that point of the birth of Christ. It's all a question of whether you choose to see them, not ignoring them, and then responding in the only way you can. If such a strong sign was pointing to the, king of, to the coming of Jesus by David and Matthew, then what about now? What are the signs some 2,000 years later? Are the signs as strong? Can we see them against all the busyness and bustiness of life? No, perhaps not if we're competing with great Christmas displays like Pimlico Promise. But I think the Word of God, the Bible, is the biggest sign there is. And we too need to be signs. We need to reflect the light of God in this world. We need to, be, to have the Word of God live in our hearts. Are we pointing the way to Christ? Are we signs to those around us that are impossible to ignore? Knowing that Jesus is Lord over all demands a change in the life of everyone who sees the sign of his arrival at Christmas. Knowing that Jesus is not only judge over all, but also saviour of all, demands a fully and open and honest response of everyone who sees the sign of the cross. And knowing that Jesus conquered death and will restore our relationship with God to its true nature demands a response of utter joy and praise and thanksgiving of everyone who sees the sign of the empty tomb and with it the hope and promise of the resurrection and the kingdom to come.